passage here. I have some pictures here I want to show you. I've been going to the Reading Hospital for almost 22 years, okay? And I have a routine, since I've lived in the area, I have a routine that I take. I drive up, and I go to the 7th Avenue. I make a left. I go one block in, and then I make another left. And I come down, and I see the 6th Avenue entrance, okay? Now, typically, I don't always carry cash with me. I usually carry credit cards, so I don't always have cash. So typically, what I will do is I'll drive down through this loop here, and I'll try to find a parking space. If I need to, I'll make a right and go down the side street. I end up walking about a block and a half a lot of times to be able to get into the 6th Street entrance. Once you go into the 6th Street entrance and you go inside, typically to get to the person's room, you have to walk through about four buildings. And they'll say, walk down this hall, follow this floor, and you walk down this hall, and you make a left, and you walk down another 100 yards, and you make a right, and you make a left, and make sure you get on this elevator. And so it takes forever to get there. Now, that's the way I've always done it. Any of you have things, is this the way you've always done it? It's the way I learned. So I would go there if I go during the day. If I go at night, a lot of times I'll go to the emergency room. I'll park in the parking garage by the emergency room. I walk down a really long hall, make a left, go into the emergency room. So if it's at night, they'll send me down another long hall and make a right and find the elevators and, and so I can finally get to the hospital. But this week I was up there late. I got there probably 11.30 or so at night. And I go to go in and, the, and they say the ER's on lockdown. And they said, I said, okay, well, when will it be open? And they said, well, it could be a half hour. It could be a couple hours. They said, but you can go up. Now when there's a shooting in Reading, what they do is they lock down their ER so that people don't come in and finish the person off. And they'll lock it down and you can't get in or you can't get out of there. But the funny thing is, is they have security with no guns. You know what you call security with no guns? You call them martyrs. But they have the security there waiting. So they said, go to the Fifth Avenue entrance and go in that way. So... I get in my car, I drive out of the parking garage, I go down to the light, make a left. Obviously, I drive past the 5th Avenue entrance, and I drive up to the 7th Avenue. I make a left and go a block, make another left. I come to the first one that I always go to, the 6th Avenue, but the doors are locked. So I finally go down to the 5th Avenue entrance. When I pull in... I make a left. The parking garage is right there. And you know what? They don't charge anything to park there. It's free. Free parking. So I pull in. And when I go in, and then when you get out of your car, you walk. I'll show you the next picture. You're walking under a covered area. For years, I've been walking block and a half in the snow. It would be raining. I'd be running. It would be snow. My feet would be wet and slushy. But that's the way I've always done it. And you know what I do? When I take somebody with me, when I take somebody with me, where do you think I go? I go to 6th Avenue. I drive up to 7th Street, make a left, go one block, make a left to turn down to the 6th Avenue, and teach them to walk a block and a half to be able to get in. Isn't that a lot like our relationships? We've learned a particular way of doing things. Maybe you learned... All you have to do is when something comes up is you get loud and everybody backs down. You may have learned that in relationships that you tried that once and the people you got loud with were bigger than you. And so you learned to be passive aggressive. 
and you got what you want, but you were passive aggressive. Or maybe you've learned to pout, and when you pout, then you end up getting your way, and everybody kind of bows down to you when you power. Maybe what you saw modeled for you was your parents. Maybe they would just cut off relationships, and something came up, and they just cut people off. And so that's the way that you learn. Well, last week when I was preaching to you, as I was preaching, the Lord spoke to me that we need to get this relationship thing right. This is really, really important, okay? It's really important. It's one of the most important things that we got to get right. we got to get right these relationships of how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. And maybe God has a better way. And he's got a better way than 7th Avenue, make a left, go one block, make another left, park a block and halfway. Maybe he's got a better way for us. God is concerned. Here's what God is concerned about. God is concerned about reconciliation. He's concerned about your relationships. He is so concerned about your relationships that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, why don't you take your Bibles and turn there. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, Therefore, if any of you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Look to the person next to you and say, God's all about reconciliation. God's all about reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did you hear that? He said that we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And it's important that if we're going to tell people about how to be reconciled to God, what gives us credibility is we're able to be reconciled with one another. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says this, make every effort, everybody say every effort, to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, It says this, because of who you are, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Relationships were so important to God that Jesus said, if you're offering your gift and realize that someone has something against you, leave the gift and go be reconciled. 
Then come and present your offering to the Lord. In essence, he's saying that your relationships with others are more important than your offerings. They're more important than your finances. They're more important than your talents. And they're more important than your service or your ministry. Verse 23 begins with this word, therefore. A long time ago, someone said, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? And it causes us to look back, okay? So every time you see therefore in Scripture, you need to look back to the Scriptures in front of it. So we're going to go back two verses to verse 21. And Jesus says this. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of what? The fire of hell. Who said that? Jesus did. Jesus said, that despising your brother in danger, or your sister, endangers your soul. Let that soak in for a minute. I'll say that again. Jesus said, what he taught there is if you despise your brother or your sister, it endangers your soul. Despising a person through acts such as murder, through anger, and even words, according to Scripture, threatens to cut you off from God forever. Because verse 22 says about the fire of hell. So what it means is that we can't just come happily to worship when you have something in your heart. You can't just come skipping into worship and think that God's going to receive your offering and think he's going to receive your service or your praise when you have something in your heart towards another person. That's not quite what Jesus says in verse 23 and 24, is it? He's not talking about your heart. In verse 23 and 24, he says, If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember not that you despise your brother, but that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering to the Lord, and I'll receive it. In verse 21 through 22, he was focused on the contempt or the bitterness that we feel for a brother and how we maybe despise them with our words or with their anger. But he makes a transition to how this relates to worship and giving, and he shifts the focus slightly away from our feelings of anger and contempt to this question. Lord, is there someone who has something in their heart towards me? Is there someone that has something that's stopping them, that's hindering them. Well, that's taking us to another level. It's not just what's in my heart, but have I caused others to have heart trouble? As I was studying this scripture, I read a great question, and it's this. Are you responsible for someone else's grudge against you? When we worship, are we responsible for all the grudges and the anger that people have in their hearts against us? This is really a good question for people who are in any form of leadership at all. Listen to me. Any form of leadership. I want you to think about a Christian judge. 
You've got a Christian who sits on a bench, and every day he has people who come into his courtroom, and he has to make a decision. And one family leaves there happy, yes, we got justice. And the other one says that we were railroaded. So whatever decision that judge makes, someone's going to be happy and someone's going to be mad. I mean, think about a politician. Let's think if you have a Christian president. And the decisions that he makes, typically 40 to 50% of the country is mad at him at any moment in time. Okay? Typically, at least half of the people are upset with him because of choices that he makes. How about the teachers? We have people here in our church who are teachers. Some of the students love you to death and others are angry because of something that you did. How about a police officer? A police officer, when he shows up to some people's house, this great sigh of relief, oh, they're here, thank God. To other people's houses, he shows up their house, and they're get out of here, let's go, let's go. Their heart starts beating fast, you know what I mean? How about this, how about a TV preacher, whoever you like or, it's funny, whoever you like or don't like, isn't that crazy? Joel Osteen, say his name, some people love him. Joel, God, oh, he's wonderful, no, no, I like, I like Benny Hinn, I like John Hagee. When they open their mouth, there's some people who love him, there's some people who think they're the Antichrist. So every time Joel Osteen goes to present his offering to the Lord, oh, God, I'm sorry, I can't worship now. I can't worship. Every time John Hagee gets up to preach, does he say, I can't offer my gift to God because someone is upset with me. If he did, we say, well, how would they ever figure out, how could they ever go to that many people? How could they ever have the time to connect with that many people before? So can they not worship Can they not use their gifts? Can they not serve the Lord until everybody is happy with them? That's the question that comes to our mind. It's not our inability to see how it works that raises a question. It's the context. If we go back 14 verses to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Yes, that's what this text is about. Be a peacemaker before you worship. Be reconciled to those who have something against you before you offer your gift. Be big. Grow up. Be a peacemaker. But then notice what comes in the next verse, because the Bible is such a balanced word. Look at the next verse, verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus says is that sometimes people will hold something against you when they shouldn't. They will insult you. They'll persecute you. They'll say all kinds of evil against you. What do you do in such a circumstance? Do you stop worshiping as long as you know that someone feels upset with you or feels this way? If so, Jesus would never have been able to worship in the latter part of his ministry. He was constantly opposed. They wanted to trip him up in the things that he said. They tried to kill him. Was he responsible for this? Not only that, he said that the same would be true for his disciples. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. 
In other words, Jesus says, if you are faithful to me, there will always be someone who has an issue with you. You hear that? If you're faithful to God, there will always be someone. But the Bible comes and says this. This has to do with, there's a verse we're going to read in just a moment about, as far as it depends on you. So what does Jesus mean in verse 23 and 24? I think he means this. If as you're worshiping, you remember that someone has something against you because you wronged them, then try to be reconciled. There's someone who you overlooked. There's someone who you made a comment to. There's someone who you weren't sensitive to. There's someone who maybe you neglected or maybe you just said what you wanted to say. He says that if you find yourself in that place and you realize that, well, my heart's okay, there's a lot of people who can do that. There's a lot of people who can say whatever they want to say, and then they're all good with it. You know what I mean? Something comes up, they can just, boom, say whatever they want to say, and then they just go on like life is normal. Everything's great. And you sit there, and you're left stewing. Am I talking to anybody? They're all good. Hey, everything's great. And you're, no, it's not. Get your arms crossed. You're mad. So if you find yourself that you have done something to offend somebody, even unintentionally, then we're to go to them and make things right. Romans 12 says this, if it is possible, why would they say if it's possible? Because in some situations, it's not going to be possible to live at peace with all men. But he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You're not responsible for what they choose to do. Jesus took every step required of a human being to be right with others. He never sinned. And still they had things against him and were not reconciled to him. They still hated him and despised him. Before I was preparing my message, I believe that the Lord gave me a word for somebody. I don't know who it is. I don't really care who it is. It's none of my business. But you'll know who he's talking to. I'm actually glad when God speaks to us. And I couldn't figure out how it fit in with today's message. I was like, what am I supposed to say that about? Until I found that question that said, are we responsible for other people's grudges against us? Because it didn't make any sense. In essence, the word of the Lord that I sensed that he was, what he was giving me, is that there's somebody, there's someone who, there's people in your life, somehow in a position of leadership in your life. It may be on your job, it may be in your home, it may be where you go to school, it may be, could be anywhere, could be your parents. But in your heart, you're beginning to despise some people, and you have an attitude towards that person in leadership. God wants to speak to you today. He wants to speak to you. And this is what I sense that he said. Now, God speaks to us each in different ways. This is what I sense he said. It's important for you to sit down and be quiet and learn and watch and listen. And you'll learn something. You hear that? You need to sit down. You need to be quiet. Shut your mouth and watch and listen. Because God wants to teach you something. Before you say it, before you act on it, before you get your attitude, God's saying to you, sit down, be quiet, and listen, because I'm going to teach you something. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16. It's a story of Michael, the daughter of Saul, and the wife of King David. The ark has been at the house of Obed-Edom. The ark had been taken away. They bring it, they capture it, they bring it back. It's for three months. Remember, after they tried to bring the ark back, and they used a cart and didn't do it God's way. And the guy reached out and touched it, and God struck him dead. Well, the ark, they stopped at Obed-Edom's house. The ark's been there, and God blessing Obed-Edom's house. 
like crazy, all kinds of blessing. And David understands that we need to bring the ark back to Jerusalem because this is where it belongs. It's the presence of God. It needs to be right in our midst. And so David goes out to bring it back. And here's where we pick up. And it says, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, listen to this word, she despised him. Everybody say despised. She despised him where? In her heart. Okay? Now we're going to skip down to verse 20. In between there, everybody's celebrating. David's dancing before the Lord. He's worshiping. They would walk a few steps and they'd start, whoo, doing a dance. I can't dance. But they would do a dance and worship and praise and celebrate. And uh, they'd walk a few more steps and they'd just have like breakdown praise. You know, they'd just break out in praise. And then David goes ahead and he feeds everybody. He gives everybody food. He blesses them. And the Bible says in verse 20, when David returned home, What's he want to do? To bless his household. He's celebrating. He wants to bless his household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. Now, David, what he had done, he has taken off his royal robes. And he was dressed like a common man with a tunic on. And so he's dancing. But when you despise somebody in your heart, you always over-exaggerate. When you despise somebody, that's right, a hater. When you despise somebody in your heart, you always over-exaggerate. And she says, but here's what David said to Michael. He says, I was before the Lord. Listen to his reply. I was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated. Listen to what he says. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But before these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. I want you to notice this next verse. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I want you to notice what David said. Here's Michael. She despised David in her heart. David's so excited that the ark is coming back into the thing. And she doesn't like the way he's doing it. What does David do? He said, let me remind you. God has anointed me. He anointed me king of Israel. God anointed me king of Israel. I'm going to worship and I'm going to lead whatever way I feel directed because God anointed me king of Israel. Let me remind you, he took it away from your daddy. He didn't give it to your brother. He didn't give it to your uncle. He didn't give it to, your, to you. He anointed me king of Israel, and I'm going to lead as I see fit. And then he said this. I said, I ain't going to have any sex with you. You want to act like that? I'm not having sex with you. That's what he did. Mark Gunger of Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage, says this. That's easy to say when you got four or five other wives and a couple concubines. <laughs> I would encourage, in today's world, that you be reconciled. <laughs> Hear me, guys. Don't get too arrogant. You want to be reconciled. Okay? You want to humble yourself. You want to work through things. But David, David said, 
God anointed me. He placed me in this position. He empowered me. So here's what I think. What should she have done? She should have gone over, sat down, been quiet. That very word. Before you feel like it's your right to speak out and straighten everybody else out. Maybe you should see, who did God call? Who did God place in that position? Who did God anoint? If he anointed you, then you go ahead and lead. But if he didn't anoint you, you better be in your place. You better be submissive to the leadership that God places in your life. I don't know who that's for, but that's for somebody. But the rest of you can just take it. All right? Now, there's three quick questions we want to ask ourselves as we finish. And they're this. If someone has something against me, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, have I wronged them? Humility is such a glorious trait. You may not have wronged them. You may not have wronged them. But when you're humble, God can restore. And if you can get people to be humble, you can restore relationships very quickly. You let pride get in. Pride always separates people. It always destroys relationships. And what did I tell you that God told me last week? we got to get this relationship thing right. we got to get this. This is important to God. And so if you've wronged somebody, the first question is, have I really wronged them? Have I wronged them? You've got to search your heart and be open to receive. The second one, if I'm to blame, have I taken the necessary steps to be reconciled? Have I done what I could to make this right? Before I come to offer my praise to God, before I go in to teach my Sunday school class, before I go to witness to somebody, when the Holy Spirit brings those things to your mind, the quickest time to deal with them is instantly. When he brings them to your mind, he has an anointing and he has a grace. You hear that? He has an anointing and a grace in your life at that moment. So if there's someone who you've wronged, who has something against you, and he brings it to your mind, that's the time to do it. Have I taken the steps that are necessary? Don't keep trying to offer your gifts to God while that stuff's still there because it's going to hinder, everybody hear me, it's going to hinder your relationship. He's not going to receive that kind of offering. So you're saying, I'm going to pay off my building a brighter future pledge. He says, I don't really care about your money. I don't really care about your money. I want you to be right. I want you to represent me. You represent me. Represent me well. Represent me truly. I've entrusted to you a ministry. Since you've been reconciled to God, I've entrusted to you a ministry of reconciliation. And finally, if not, am I willing to humble myself and make the contact before I give my offering to God? If you say no, you're going to be going around that mountain a few times. God, what is he looking for? He's looking for people who will say, Lord, if I've done something wrong. Now, what does it depend on? As far as it depends on you. We can't control other people's choices or decisions. And sometimes we have to live with the brokenness of other people's choices. We have to live with the pain of unresolved heart issues. That's not ours to take. We have to search our heart and say, God, have I done something? If I haven't done something, am I willing to be humble before that person and before you? As we close this, I want to pray. I want to pray that we get how important relationships are. And that instead of going to 7th Avenue and making a left and making another left and walking a block and a half and then walking through four buildings, that we'll allow God to teach us a new way today. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm asking for the relationships in our lives. Lord, I pray that the reality of our relationships would be on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven, Father, would you bring reconciliation 
into relationships that have been broken? Would you bring healing? Would you allow us, Lord, to go beyond just not harboring something in my heart towards someone else? Lord, we ask that that's our issue today, that we would take care of that, even here, even right now. But would you cause us to be leaders, to be strong in the Lord? And would you cause us in that strength to humble ourselves before others and to make matters right? I pray that whoever this word was for, I pray that you would transform relationships, that you would heal broken family dynamics, places on the job, with old friends. Would you restore and bring healing to them? I pray in Jesus' name. And give us the strength and courage to do our part. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. God bless you.